And the message this evening is titled, Jesus Christ, King of an Unshakable Kingdom. My goal tonight is to focus exclusively on Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a scene in John 14 when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he was speaking to them about what was going to happen after his death. And he said to them, you know where I am going. And Thomas, I think, spoke for all of us when he said, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way to where you are going? And Jesus responded with the famous words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is in Jesus Christ alone that we have salvation, eternal life, and the joy of the presence of God here on earth. And Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus Christ. And I believe if Mary and Joseph and the wise men were here tonight, they would tell us to focus exclusively on Jesus Christ. Now these words we're going to read in Isaiah, this was written about 730 years before Jesus' birth. That's a long time. In fact, when I was reading about Jesus' fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament, I came across this article on Firm Israel titled, How Many Prophecies Did Jesus Fulfill? And I don't know if I have any mathematicians here tonight, but there's a mathematician named Peter Stoner who looked at eight specific important prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And he took the modern science of probability uh, to judge the probability of what it would take for one man so many years later to fulfill these eight prophecies so specifically. And he concluded that the odds were one, one in 100 quadrillion. Uh, that is one followed by 17 zeros. In order to comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates for us. He says, if we took 100 quadrillion silver dollars, laid them on the face of Texas, they would cover the state two feet deep. Now we would need to mark one of these silver dollars, stir the whole mass thoroughly, blindfold a man, drop him in Texas, and what would be the chances that that man would, would have of finding the right silver dollar? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time. Now that's the probability that one man could fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies hundreds of years later. Jesus fulfilled 324 specific prophecies from the Old Testament. That's a lot more zeros than 17. The point is, uh, the fact that we are studying on Christmas a passage from Isaiah 9, written 2,755 years ago, about Christ, is an evidence that Jesus is truly the Son of God and that the Bible is truly the Word of God. And so I don't want to lose sight of that as we read this passage here tonight. I want to give you a little context on what was happening uh, when this was taking place in the book of Isaiah because I think it's applicable to our time. Uh, things were very, very dark uh, in the nation of Israel 730 years before Jesus' birth. In fact, the kingdom that had been united under David and under Solomon had been split up into two kingdoms following Solomon. The northern kingdom retained the name of Israel. The southern kingdom became Judah. 
And within 12 years of these words, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel would be conquered by a nation called Assyria. Okay, so things were going to get worse. The southern kingdom of Judah, in 148 years following this prophecy, would be conquered by a nation called Babylon. Now, to be exiled and conquered uh, as an Israelite was a horrible, horrific, tragic, traumatic thing. Because they would have to leave their land, they would be displaced from the only home they knew, from their temple, from their worship. I think you're getting the point. The point is that things were dark when Isaiah wrote these words. But just as God so often does in our seasons of darkness, he provided a thread of hope. That thread of hope was running right through this section of Isaiah. And that hope was the hope of the Christ. In Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth of the Christ is predicted. It says in Isaiah 7.14 that a child, a special child, would be born of a virgin. And his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that same child that is promised in Isaiah 7 has a birth announcement about him in Isaiah 9. And that's the passage we're looking at tonight. I'm going to give you guys three specific points about Jesus Christ, our King, And the first point is this. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Jesus Christ is our humble king. Jesus Christ is our humble king. Let me read the first part of verse 6 for us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, those first two lines are connected by a phrase, to us, because Jesus Christ was sent to us, first to the nation of Israel, and then to us, to save his people from their sins. But these two lines give us a lot of description about who this child will be. The first line that says, to us a child is born, speaks of the humanity of Christ. It speaks of the fact that Jesus was truly a human being born in a manger to a human mother, to a poor family in a backwater town in the nation of Israel. And then he grew up and he experienced the broad range of emotions that you and I experience. That he experienced grief and pain and hunger and thirst. That Jesus Christ was really fully man. And that's very important. Because the first heresy, that's a wrong belief, a wrong doctrine to enter the church, challenged not the deity of Christ, it challenged the humanity of Christ. It challenged the idea that that Jesus was truly a man. But you and I, we can enjoy this Christmas season trusting what the Bible teaches us, that Jesus Christ was really a child born 2,000 years ago. And that we don't just have Jesus as the Son of God, just a God, just a deity, but He's also with us. He's not only all-powerful, He's also a God who walks through the difficult situations of life with us. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus Christ is fully man. He is our humble king. This next line, 
When it says to us, a son is given, speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Well, because it says he was a son before he was even born. He was the son of God, preexistent, uncreated, in heaven, before he ever came to earth. He was given for you and for I. And if you're like me and you read certain things in the Bible, it doesn't always click right away for me. So this idea that Jesus Christ could exist in heaven before existing on earth is a little bit hard for me to grasp. So I was thinking about this. Um, Let me illustrate. So when I was in high school, I went on a missions trip to Russia for three weeks. Now, what I remember most about that trip was uh, being stripped of all my normal American comforts, right? Uh, I didn't have my bed for three weeks. I had to eat a bunch of foods I didn't really like. I remember one time I picked up what I thought was roast beef and I took a bite of it and I looked closer and it was cow tongue and there was tongue bristles on it. And if you like cow tongue, that's good for you. I will never eat it again. (laughs) But when I came back home, I experienced a humbling. I, I became more thankful for the things that I had. And then I was thinking about Jesus Christ going from heaven to earth. Now, if there's a humbling of going from America to Russia for three weeks, think about leaving a place where there's no sin, no brokenness, no pain, and consciously making a decision to come down to earth. And if Jesus had come down to earth in taking on a kingly existence, that would still be a very big gap. But he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. He was born to a humble family in a humble town in a manger. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died a horrific, unjust death on a cross. If you ever struggle to accept that Jesus Christ loves you, remember that. Remember what he left for you. It says, The government shall be upon his shoulder. Now in ancient times, the government was considered to be a burden borne on the shoulders of the king. And this would be represented by placing a robe on the shoulders or the back of a king. And this represented that the government was weighed down on the ancient king's shoulders, okay? So in a very similar sense, Jesus Christ, as our humble king, came down and bore the weight of this world, understood what it meant to be a man, and he has borne the government on his shoulders, And as I was thinking about this, you know, Jesus certainly experienced the weakness of being a human being, but it's not so anymore. Uh, We're told about God in heaven that he never sleeps, he never slumbers, he never grows weary. He is constantly interceding at the right hand of the Father for you and I. And what is so encouraging for me is that as Jesus Christ prays for you and for I, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. The Bible says he was tempted at all points, yet without sin. And sometimes we have a hard time relating to Jesus, I think. But let me ask you this. uh, Who has been tempted worse? A person who eventually gives in to sin, as we all have at times? Or someone who never gave in to sin? Who bore the full weight of the temptation of sin and never gave in? That means any temptation you and I face, any pain, any grief, You and I face, Jesus Christ 
can sympathize with that because he is our humble king. Jesus Christ is our humble king, and that leads to our next one. Jesus Christ is our mighty king. Jesus Christ is our mighty king. It says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now this word wonderful is the Hebrew word pele, and it means a wonder or a miracle. And the point is that this child is somewhat of a wonder or a miracle. This is not a normal child being born. But I find it interesting that that word is connected to the word counselor. Jesus Christ is the counselor that doesn't need any other counselor. Think if Jesus had a counseling practice, if he was a licensed counselor on earth. And I was having a dispute with my friend, and so I went to see Jesus to deal with my issue. I imagine I would walk in, I would say to Jesus, uh, Jesus, I'm having this issue with my friend. He would probably say back to me, I know you're having that issue with your friend. I also know about the harsh thought you had about your friend yesterday. And I know about what you said behind your friend's back three days ago. The point is that Jesus has all the information. He knows everything. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He is the person that you and I can go to with any problem and get perfect advice. You know, ancient kings needed counselors. We are encouraged to have counselors. The president of the United States has a cabinet of counselors. Not so with Jesus. He doesn't need any counselors. Paul says it this way in Romans eleven thirty four through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It says that he is our mighty God. Now, if you know uh, the gospel accounts, you'll know that uh, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey about 2,000 years ago. He rode in uh, on a donkey in lowliness, in humility as our humble king. But I got news for you. That is not how he's going to return. At the second coming of Christ, he's not coming back on a donkey. In fact, the Bible tells us he's coming back on a white horse. And I love the way that Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, says this. There's my spot. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, 
He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have a humble king, but we also have a mighty king. And when you and I are facing the difficulties, the pain, and the brokenness of this life, we have a Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ who is God with us, who can empathize with us, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but He can also make promises to us and always fulfill them. He's also in complete control. He is sovereign. That means whatever happens in your life and my life has to pass through His hands. He is a humble king and he is a mighty king. It says that he is the everlasting father. Now this phrase means the father of eternity. And when the Bible calls somebody a father of something, it's referring to that person as the originator of that thing. Okay? So that's why Satan is called the father of lies because lies originated with Satan. Right? We know that from the Genesis account when Satan lied to Eve, which led to the first sin. So if Satan is the father of lies, Jesus Christ is the father of eternity. Because Jesus Christ's finished work, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, that finished work is what has purchased our eternal life. So he's the father, the originator of eternity. This also refers to him as a fatherly king. He treats his sons and daughters with the love of the most loving father in the universe. Take the best father on earth, multiply that by an endless number, number, and that is the type of love that Jesus Christ has for his sons and daughters for whom he purchased eternity. It says that he is the prince of peace. Now, this really got me thinking. We all want peace, right? I mean, we look around our world. People search far and wide for some semblance of peace. People search for peace in a pill. People search for peace in financial security, in relationships. But if you've been in the world long enough, you know that there's no true and lasting peace outside of Jesus Christ because he is the prince of peace. Peace belongs to Jesus. There's a story in the Gospels of the disciples being on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they are hit by a huge hurricane-like wind and the boat is filling and reasonably they're panicking. They think they're going to die and Jesus Christ is in the stern of the boat taking a nap, which I just find amazing. And the disciples go down and they say, Teacher, don't you care? that we're perishing. And Jesus wakes up and he says three words to the storm. He says, peace, be still. And the storm was over like that. Because peace belongs to Jesus. He is the prince of peace. And there is no storm in your life or my life that he can't immediately end. He is the prince of peace. He said in John 14 to his followers, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he says these words to us tonight. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The world cannot give you the peace that Jesus Christ alone can give you. He is our Prince of Peace. He is our humble King. He is our mighty 
king. And here's the third one. Jesus Christ is our unshakable king. Our unshakable king. It says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is talking about actual world peace. Something we joke about, something as human beings we simply dream about, but we know will never be accomplished in this life apart from Christ. When Jesus Christ returns, and when that kingdom of God in heaven overtakes this kingdom of earth, there will be actual, eternal world peace. Man, how awesome would that be? Now, how can there be perfect peace and then be an increase in peace? I don't know. I guess we'll just have to find out. But I look forward to finding out. This is speaking of an unshakable kingdom. Aren't we realizing today that our kingdom is pretty shakable? Things are pretty shakable, even in the most powerful kingdoms on earth. Maybe you're like me and you enjoy reading history. Um, Every great kingdom I've read about, whether it be Rome or Greece or Persia or Babylon, every kingdom that looked so perfect, so unshakable, is actually very shakable. And it's not promised to last. But there's one kingdom. There's one kingdom that God has promised will last. And it is the kingdom of God represented today by the church. And Jesus Christ's kingdom is already reigning on earth through the church wherever we see this cross. But someday, Jesus Christ is coming back where he will make everything perfect. And there will be perfect peace in an unshakable kingdom forever. I guess my only question for you tonight is, are you a citizen of that kingdom? That kingdom is here to stay. And that king is the perfect king. A king worthy of trusting. A king worthy of giving your life to. A king who can counsel you, walk with you. Who can oversee your problems. Meet every need that you have. The question is, will you trust him? In thinking about that king, or that kingdom, excuse me, Isaiah 11 Verses 6 through 9 talk about the peace that will be in that kingdom. And look at verse 9. It says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Sounds like a wonderful place to live. And it ends with this phrase, uh, the end of verse 7, this phrase that we only see a few times in Scripture. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know what that means? Maybe you're sitting here tonight and saying, Billy, what do I got to do? Well, in terms of what it takes for Jesus to come to earth, be born as a son, go to the cross, to purchase salvation, uh, there's nothing you got to do about that. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. This is a work of God. This is not a work that we did or a work that we deserve. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is, that, is believe that Jesus Christ really did come 2,000 years ago, that he was born of a virgin, 
that he lived a perfect, sinless life, and that he was unjustly sent to the cross as a penalty for you and I's sin, but that he didn't remain in the grave, that after three days he rose again and he ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And Romans 10.9 tells us if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All you have to do is believe. I was thinking about last year uh, when I was uh, watching over students in a student ministry and we went to a student camp. And if you've ever been to a student church camp, you know that the gospel is preached a lot and a lot of students amazingly come to know Jesus. And I remember one student walked up to me and he was a little bit shaken up. And he said, Billy, I, I have believed tonight in the gospel, but I don't feel any different. I didn't cry. I didn't laugh. I feel exactly the same. And I said to that student, I said, well, whose finished work are we trusting in for salvation? Is it uh, dependent on your ability to cry or laugh or feel different for you to be saved eternally? He said, no. I said, that's right. It's the finished work of Christ. And you don't have to feel any type of way. All you have to do is confess that he is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead and you can leave this place knowing that you have eternal life and you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you've given your life to a king who can pick up every single piece if you will only come as you are. This is a king worth trusting eternally. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never let you down. My only question for you is will you repent of your sin and trust in Christ as your eternal king? Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we are all sinners. We are all in need of a Savior. I pray if there is a person here tonight who's never trusted in Christ, that they would pray these words with me. Father, I'm a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. I know that I can't pick up the pieces of my life. I believe that you came to earth, that you were born fully God and fully man and lived a sinless life and went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, but that you did not remain in the grave, that you rose again after three days, ascended to heaven, and are seated at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, I repent and turn from my sin. I give you my life. I want you to be my king. In Jesus' name, amen.